the dude in Echo and the Bunny Man. You know, he wanted to be confrontate. He wanted to like go after. That was one of the worst interviews I ever did. Actually, tell me. Well, well, Ian McCullough. Yeah, um, I think it was, it was for the New York Press, and um, you know, I was a little like intimidated because it was yeah. fucking Ian McCullough. Yeah. Right? And uh, it was at not a record label. I, I think it was just some sort of like music management, like yeah. their little office. And I went in, and the whole place smelled like cat food. And Emil was sitting at this small table in the kitchen, just with like aviator sunglasses on, yeah. just looking like sh- shit, un- unshaven. And I sat down, and I asked him some like I started off with some softball question. Yeah, I, you know, I, I like to do that to just yeah. get into the interview. Yeah. And he goes. That is the worst question I've ever been asked. <laughs> and I was just like, oh so that, like, my. this, like, sets the tone for the interview, right? And I'm, like, the whole time, I'm, like, totally on edge. I'm, like, this far from the guy. Yeah. And so we're, we start going, and it, and, it, and it gets a little better. And at one point, he, he stops, and he goes, and he apologizes to me. He said, he said, you know, my daughter was just in a car crash this morning. He's like, she's okay, but I'm a little on edge. Oh, my. That's pretty amazing that he apologized. Because he's, like, you know, a famous asshole. Yeah. Like, like yeah, it turned around. It was. It turned out to be okay, but it was just like I don't. You know, when when something starts off bad like that, there's no way you can. Yeah, it's, and that's scary. It has to be terrifying. Yeah, it was right? pretty horrifying. And yeah. like, what's his current state? I mean, is he a functional, like, creative person, or is he just like? I a, don't. You know, I'm trying to remember. I, I think it. Was, I think it was just some. I think they were just touring on yeah. one of the old ones at that point. I don't know what he's even doing. Like, par- partially my bad. I didn't do a lot to um, to research it, but I, I think there were. I think they did a reissue or something, and they were touring yeah. on the album, and you know, and I, I don't, I tend not to come to interviews with a lot of predetermined questions, which yeah. can either be a really good thing or really bad. I thing. think it's good. It's good because then you're having a conversation with people. But it's good until you realize that that person is not receptive, yeah. and then you have nothing to fall back. I on. know, and That's, that ends yeah. up being the problem. So, who is uh, the speaking of assholes? Yeah, who's the, <laughs> I'm going to turn the tables on you. Who's the biggest asshole who who you've uh, well, there's so there's only been one person that ever didn't pay their bill mm-hmm. um, at Tiny Telephone. His name is. <laughs> he stiffed us on one day. He was actually like called us on the way over here and said, "Oh, I'll be there in a few minutes." And he stiffed the engineer and the studio, and then he told me he would pay me. I mean, he called. He's called. I'm coming over. Yeah. Like, like you know, it's not like he had an excuse or said I can't come. Yeah. And then he never like answered his phone after that. And then months later, he told us he was going to pay, and then he didn't pay. So in a way, that story about poor m- and whatever you know was burning a hole, whatever prevented him from, pre- prevented him from bringing his cash to here on the way of riding through the mission. One can only wonder mm-hmm. <laughs> what other temptations. But um, he's the only person in 16 years yeah. who didn't pay. So I would say actually this place is pretty asshole free. We did. Um, we do screen out clients pretty aggressively. And that's one thing about being sold out is that I do have the luxury of like, there's a lot of chatter in the engineering community and studio community. We know who the problem people are. So we, we can often, I could just deflect their business somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So there have been assholes. I mean, you know, I did, I told you I did an interview with the AV Club where I called out um, Stephen Jenkins and his producer Jason Carmer for being like very rude to me, but that that that's almost was like comical and also worth it because yeah. um, it's Third Eye Blind. So that was like a funny story, but I would say that that's pretty rare. Bands are very socialized; they need each other. Do do you do you feel do you like 
cater to them in the way that a, a, a bigger, you know, kind of more established professional studio would? Do you, do you have deli meats out and things like that? For yeah, these we, bands? we do not. And the thing is that that's why I think bands like the studio. It's, it's, yeah. this, this studio is, first off, you know, we're in like one of the great food corridors of, of the country, if not the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's 24th Street is, and it's ever changing. It's yeah. an amazing place. Um, and, you know, this is, there is not a, an assistant or secretary or intern, you know, with, a, you know, a jug of cucumber water at the, the front door. This isn't like a phony baloney put on, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, like, this is a, a place for serious lifting. And so you come in here and it's like, you're going to be working with an engineer slash producer, one person. It's fast as hell. And it's totally to the point. So we don't really have any, um, there's no frills in really the best way. And, yeah. and it also keeps, makes the costs reasonable for, for artists because most, even bands that sell records are like, cr- have crazy budgetary concerns. You know, all, every band that comes in here, unless they work at Google or Twitter. That's what, uh, that's what we were talking about earlier was, was, was day jobs and this idea. That, yeah. You know, you feel like it, at this point, if you're an indie band, you should be doing something on the side to support yourself. That I do believe, strongly believe in my, my patented dual income stream TM. Like I really want to like write, I want to do a seminar about yeah. that. Maybe I'll do that at Max FunCon. Like <laughs> I really think that you have the, the vagaries of like, that it wasn't, Part of the thing with touring and record making is that the cycles are brutal. Yeah. So let's say that you're on a year and a half cycle, which is very fast. So you come back from tour on the previous record. You shut down operations. <laughs> if you have bandmates, you have to find a way where everyone has some income coming in and you're able to write music. You have a dormant dormancy period of like, it has, it's got to be six, eight months to write a record at least. And then you need to fund that recording. Mm-hmm. So that's where your label advance comes in. Well, label advances are shrinking every yeah. year. It's just, even if you're on a big, big indie label, it's just going to be not, it's not going to cover it. And then you have, to, you have to wait for that very uncomfortable period from when you get the ma- record mastered and then the actual record comes out and you can tour. That period might be five months, eight months. The fa- mm-hmm. fastest it's ever going to be is four months. And that's like people just like, you know, sprinting to the finish line. So then that's a lot of, and you're really not allowed to tour at that point. You know, you're, you're waiting to go out on your, like, grand U.S. and mm-hmm. European tour. So that's a lot of time for just sync money or licensing money or publishing money to come in. It's just, unless you're really big, there's no way. But you, but you think, I mean, you, you, you were saying earlier that you think that just in terms of the creative process that it's, it's a positive, that, you know, that, that waiting tables or something. Because I, I, I can understand that from the stamp, standpoint of... Um, well, you know, if you're touring, if you tour, you record an album, you tour. I mean, what are you writing about if yeah. not touring? Yeah, you're writing about sitting at home, like yeah. worrying about money. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, the thing is, is that I, I think that work is sacred, and I think that, like, for me, it was extremely important to work for so long, mm-hmm. and then, you know, I essentially, I'm doing the same. Th- I mean, I'm more of a, you know, th- this my job here. I don't. I'm not an engineer here. I own the studio, which means that you know, Ethan and I are cleaning this morning. You know, yeah. I'm. I'm like, that's that's the job. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like, yeah. I think it one, it keeps you honest. Two, I think that it's very important for us to be connected to manual labor in some point. Even if you're, even, even again, if you're, on, if you're, you know, working at the Tesla, you know, you know, there is in this element of like physical, a connection to the physical world, to the real world, to limitations of of like math and material science, we're, we're not supposed to just 
sit in a chair and think. Let, let me ask you, because um, you had said earlier that you were an e- economics major, and this, yeah. is, this is a question I keep asking creative people. In, in terms of when, when you're going out there, you, you know, and everybody's got, not everybody, a lot of people, most people I encounter, you know, they've got their dream, and mm-hmm. they've got their, their day job, and, and the, the question ultimately, I mean, you, you, you're in an interesting place, I would say a fairly unique place, in that you're doing something as you're, I don't know. Would you call it a day job? I mean, this yeah. is your primary. It's my primary income. job. Yeah. yeah. Um, where actually, in- interesting. Well, yeah. actually, finish your question. I'll yeah. get into the, okay. the interesting part about the income thing. Yeah, I, I was just gonna, you know, and, and the question I keep asking is, you know, um, like if I want to be a novelist, should I go into publishing? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Should you yep. go into something that's tangentially related to what yeah. you want to do? Well, th- I would say that. Um, if it inspires you, yes. The thing that I knew, I knew that owning a studio and actually getting close to the gear and the mechanics of mm-hmm. music making um, would be inspiring. Yeah. In fact, th- there's a lot of like back and forth. For instance, on on an you know an average day, I could come in here, and there might be you know a, a two string players in this room recording, and I and I I'm like, wow, shit, who is that cellist? Oh, that's Michelle Kwan. I gotta hire her, man. She's I, her 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 playing her like her ability to like improvise yeah. and actually read incredibly fast. Like this is a great session musician. So then I hire Michelle. Is that what your orchestral you did that that or kind of orchestral record? Yeah, did that come out of seeing it, it this. Did, it did. What basically what happened is that someone approached me because of the studio. This girl Mina Choi, who's a brilliant arranger, and she was, you know, she emailed me, "Hi, I just moved here from New York. I'm the director of a of a modular orchestra called Magic Magic Orchestra." And, you know, this is what I want to do. And I was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grab this girl and run. I'm going to run with her idea mm-hmm. and her because she's real. I knew it, like, before yeah. I met her. Before, I just knew the tone of the email was, like, so smart, so valuable. And um, I met with her, and then I was able to incorporate, because I own the studio, I was able to actually incorporate her idea, make her the house orchestra. And it's, like, really worked. But, do you, but, but for, for that album specifically, did you have... Songs or were you writing songs on, you know, with the challenge of let me write songs? I wrote songs specifically, specifically for Mina. For so that, that yeah. whole album was yeah. tailored to my experience of watching them record in here. So they did like a huge Explosions in the Sky thing. They did yeah. Death Cab for Cutie. They did the Dodos. I watched them do all these interesting things. I did a show with them. So I knew what it felt like to play acoustic guitar and be surrounded by 35 orchestral players. And I was like, okay, I, I really want to do this, man. You know, like, I want to... But it's sort of, it's almost like this is kind of a thing that I'm going to do and probably maybe I'll only do it one time. Yeah, I, yeah, I knew okay. it was a one-time thing. And yeah. so, and it made me write different material. Mm-hmm. It made me um, give up control in a way that I've never given up control. I delivered um, demos to Mina that had very little harmonic content. And yeah. so she stripped out all the chords. So you'll have a song like Overcoat on that album that has nothing to do with the demo that I sent her. It's like she even changed the melody line. So she, it was a completely collaborative album with like a total genius. It, so that changed me. It, it goes into this interesting conversation of, and, and you know, I hate to use this term because it's got negative connotations, but this idea of kind of gimmicks or hooks. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because um, I was telling you that the first time I saw you, really the first time I'd ever heard your music was... 2003 Great American Music mm-hmm. Hall. You were opening for Beulah, and and, and I, I don't I don't want to say what I liked about it, but I think what really sort of got me and, and made me interested and made me I, you know I bought the four tracker yeah, record yeah. that night was you know the loops kind of yeah you know that yeah. you were you were playing with this sort of like pre recorded music and it, and it was something that 
in a strange way, you know, set you aside from. It, it can be exhausting seeing mm-hmm. all these bands, mm-hmm. you know. And yep. I, I was out south, south by Southwest recently, and and you know, you end up having this sort of existential crisis. I'm not in a band, but even from the standpoint of being a music listener, absolutely. How do I yeah. figure out what I'm going to listen to? And yeah. in a weird way, having a hook is a good thing. Absolutely, and having something where it's like, oh. I'm in this pizza parlor, and there's like someone singing and someone playing drums, and there's no instruments. Okay, this is interesting. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you, you, it, it actually like it rewards completely outside thinking, where it's like you can go home that night and you're like, well, mm-hmm. I saw 15 bands, but I actually this is really the only one that I remember the experience of. And in a way, it's just it's impossible. We're in a you know the the quartet, the all male. Two guitars, bass, drums, quartet idea, which is sacred in, yeah. in rock and yeah. indie rock, that's been a constant thread since 1963. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's very difficult yeah. to do that. And it's a be- when it works, it's a beautiful, you know, drums, XCC's drums and wires. When it works, or, you know, he- heaven up here, you know, like when it works, it's like yeah. unbelievable. Actually, I guess they only had one guitar player, but, you know, it's, it's, when it works, it is phenomenal. But it's so difficult to, you know, I, I'm, I took a class at, at Berkeley. On Chaucer, it was a great, probably the best class I ever took at Berkeley. And the first day, the professor said, "Listen, if you write, if you're going to write an essay on the Knight's Tale, just realize that I've read ten thousand essays on the Knight's Tale. I've read all of them. I've yeah. read every 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 iteration you could possibly yes, write. Everything you're going to say, yeah. I know. You're t- yeah. I can. It's, you're going to telegraph every idea that I've ever heard yeah. a million times. So, he said, be weird. Be, yeah. Write about the most." Odd little corner of this yeah. Canterbury Tales collection, you know, and I thought that was a fascinating way yeah. of thinking. And I think that bands are rewarded. That's why right now I only tour as a duo because yeah. we can't do things that other bands can do. It's just guitar and then drums, and then he plays bass on the Moog synthesizer while we're playing Jason, and it just makes us sound different. It, we're just ha- we're at an advantage, even though it's limited in mm-hmm. some ways. It's much more limited because we don't have all these other colors. It's just we're at an advantage. So d- when you first because because you were you were doing some home recording some four track yeah. stuff yeah um, you, I guess you, you started off doing that obviously before you, you built this yeah. palace to yeah. Yeah. to analog recording um, did how did you start touring and what configuration did you start touring well it's it, man it was so hard because I was often touring with friends and there was so I was really funding the tours mm-hmm. and losing money on tours that I was touring with people who were involved who were nice enough to to not really make enough money to be on tour um and because of that i had like really changing personnel all the time because it's really difficult to hold people for a while i was touring with spoon's bass player joshua zarbo who was doing it really because he liked the music Mm -hmm. he was probably making a lot less than he was when he was touring with spoon and um i played with my old band's bass player um uh dan carr was nice enough to do tours with me really you know, taking, again, less than what he would have in any circumstance. So, you know, that's the cool thing about art is that people do pitch in. If they're, if they're on board, they're on board, and they make it possible to do yeah. that. But, you know, it, it was, it's difficult. For many years, I didn't have um, a tour manager, and so I would tour manage myself. And that's, like, very taxing to add that on to, like, the but, duties of it. But, you know, you are, you, you do seem to also be kind of a left and right brain person. You do, and some, some part of you probably appreciated that you were, Counting the money up each night. Yes, right? yeah. I and I do. I do like. I have Dutch blood. You know, Dutch people like commerce. They like yeah. business. They they like. They're they're very like reality based people, and 
I might just have be completely dreaming that I have any real Dutch blood, and that that matters. It probably mm-hmm. doesn't, but yeah. I like to think. You know, when I'm in Holland, I, I see and I have an affinity for these like very industrious people, and, yeah. and I do I do think that, you know, I, I I clear I have like a zone out, staring out the window, and like, you know, I'm a I, I have a, like a tendency to drop out too. You know, I mean, I definitely ha- the the right and left brain things fight with each other yeah. for sure. It's not yeah. like totally harmonious, but it does help my creative life for sure that I'm in touch with both sides, I think for sure. You were you were telling me earlier that um I think the quote was um the studio owners are the strangest people yeah. you'll ever meet. Um because again it's people who are specifically in a way gotten to that business to yeah. hang out with rock stars all yeah. day. Yeah. And and I'm wondering if um you know, in in a way that not only are you a, a musician, but you are kind of not on the fringes, but on the on the back end of stuff as mm-hmm. well. You know, if, if you weren't playing the music, would you also be? Would you still be connected to music in in a way? That's interesting. I think I probably would because I've always been drawn to the mechanics of recording. Like mm-hmm. no matter what, like what at whatever point, even when I'm. Really, not. I don't want to write music. I don't want to tour. I'm completely, absolutely, like finished with mm-hmm. what I'm doing. I've always been as a, just as like a, 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 like a lover of craft and nerd stuff. Like it's very hard not to be drawn yeah. to these machines. I mean, yeah. they're fascinating. Yeah. You know, what I, mean? I mean, I could think and talk about this Yamaha YC45 for ten hours. It's a fascinating. But I bet you can. You know, yeah. <laughs> and and so I think that I, no matter what, I would be drawn to it. And but the. I think that the the thing that's helped me is that I have found a way to fit this into my creative mm-hmm. life where because the reason why I think that studio owners are so weird is that one it, it's the pro- the profit margin of a recording studio successful recording studio which is probably 1% of recording studios is so small that I would be better off if I ran like a dry cleaning business. Yeah. Now I can't really bring myself to run a dry cleaning business it's so fucking boring. I it wouldn't I wouldn't be able to do it but so if you have a, ri- a rich person that's like, that's like engaged in studio ownership as like a hobby, fun, sure. you know, phony business yeah. hobby, it's such an unrewarding. First off, bands don't want to talk to studio owners. Bands are they're they're completely self-contained yeah. units, which is beautiful. Yeah. I love it, man. Like, and and also like it's not fun. It's a totally not fun. And I'm not just saying this as propaganda to prevent whatever rich guy is listening <laughs> to this. He's like, you know, yeah. I need to open a studio yeah. that that gives away free time because they can't get clients in, but. It is, it is a very, it's a pretty tough business. But there is something, you know, when 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 Branson like he he like started whatever Virgin Cola or whatever because his, yeah, or, yeah. or his or Virgin Airlines because yeah. it was the hardest thing to do. Yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah. Like I loved that. I yeah. it totally affected me when I read that interview yeah. with him, and I was like. Oh, that's fast. Yeah, let's do the hardest thing, and let's try to do it. Like, well, yeah, when you're a billionaire and you have a lot of free time, you, yes, you, you, yeah. you need to find challenges in any place you can. I'm wondering if, you know, as you said, you could talk about that synth for, for hours and hours, and I'm wondering if that ends up being um, a, a curse as far as, you know, it, 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 making music has to be this kind of pure, visceral thing, and do you end up, do you micromanage too much? Do you think too much about it? I, I would say that... Seven, eight years ago, yes, and I've s- totally stopped doing mm-hmm. that. And I think that a lot of it is that I record at home. A lot of stuff that I do starts at home, and I record on my Ampex tape deck at home. Like yesterday, I did. You know, I'm doing. I told you I was doing that Molina yeah. song, and I recorded maybe for seven hours straight, and it was not 
most when I do vocals, I actually don't even listen to them again. I just, if, if the feeling that I had is right, then mm-hmm. I go with it and I don't yeah. listen back and microman. I never punch. This, it's linear recording, so I've completely accept the performance aspect of what I'm doing. The problem is, is in execution. So yesterday I did a bunch of keyboards and I sang about like 12 vocal tracks that have different kind of, almost like a choral um, round thing. Because, you know, w- this guy's a great songwriter. I got to yeah, do something that's sure. interesting and that, that's, that's worthy of what, what of his, like... Not only know. a great songwriter, but he, the songs that he recorded were great too. I mean, he yeah. did all of his music justice oh yeah he did and he did great you know he did a lot of stuff at electrical he did really really good recordings and you know he i got really obsessed with this bonus disc where he did he just sat at his kitchen and Mm -hmm. you can hear birds in the background and he just like you can hear the tape recorder going on and off you know he just did like demos of his songs and it's like that brings up that brings up because you know like everybody else in the world i'm a huge mountain goats fan and i'm wondering you know he's got this whole this whole career yeah of Home recordings, yeah. of tape or recordings. Yeah. Um, how 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 do you do that justice? How do, how do you take him into the studio oh and boy. record him? And and I mean, I, I mean, you probably you know at least in the early days there was probably a lot of hate lobbed your way for oh, yeah. being yeah. Actually, you know what's interesting that. is that this is what's so interesting because I had toured you know I've toured with John a bunch yeah. and I had been I have had like a a lot of exposure and interplay to the Mountain Goats like community because of just being on you know i once i got like super depressed and darnell was like dude come on tour with me so i just played guitar with mountain goats Mm -hmm. for one tour because i was like not in a good place and so i also volunteered to work merch so for many shows i was just hanging out the merch table with like mountains because this is the weird thing is that i think first off i got way less heat than I thought that I deserved, actually, yeah. for doing that. Because I was a fan of the boombox recording. Yeah. That's why I got in contact with John. So, in other words, I like... It's not like I listened to, you know, All Hail West Texas, or... For me, it was Corner's Gambit. That was the record that totally changed my life. It's not like I listened to that record and was disappointed. I listened to that record thinking... It's crucial yeah. that he recorded this on a boombox. It had to be on a boombox. You were you were saying, "Hey, let's go clean this up. Let's yeah. take some of this hiss and, off." Yeah, and I'm a fan of you yeah. know like Sebado and, and sure. early pavement stuff. That was like yeah. very and, and guided by voices. voices. Those yeah. are those were all yeah. big records for me. And that record, those records depended on being mm. recorded in that way, actually. And so it was more of in talking with John and in talking with like Peter. It was like. Again, it's why you make a record with an orchestra. It's like, you do have to... You know, John had made 10, 15 of those records in a row, and he wanted to be challenged, and he he also knew that that was, like, going to be a big and interesting departure for him. Um, And again, art is always two ways. He could always go back to his Sony boombox. Well, I'm wondering, uh, yeah, is, is... Is that is that something people can do? Because we we were you know we were discussing the differences between um, the many differences between film and, and audio recordings, and you know you were saying that the, one of the beauty of films is that it, people are picking the right tools for the yeah. right job. So yeah. you know David Lynch, for example, doing Inland Empire yeah. on a crappy little little digital camera, and I, I I don't see I don't see a lot of people going back. A lot of people deciding yeah. that that you, that boombox recording is going to be the best way to yeah. record the new album. It's hard to go back. It is very yeah. and and also there is a there is an odd you know there's an odd financial connection like for instance you want a Nora Jones record you want it to be an expensive recording sure. you know what I mean and sure. like her new record is very very good sounding and the thing is is that it's just part of the it's it's weird it's tied into like 
where the artist is in their career. You demand a certain fidelity and you demand a certain experience from listening to that record. And like, I do think that John is probably one of the few people that could go back and mm-hmm. would be like one of the biggest things in the world. If he made like a boombox record, yeah. I mean, could you imagine that? Yeah. It'd be fucking awesome. But the thing is, is that we did, you know, with, with We Shall All Be Healed, which was the transition record, we did really think about how do we bring an element of distortion and ultra-fine okay. compression that he was getting from his boombox. Huh. Very, he was yeah. getting it in a very intuitive way by moving how close and far he was from the yeah. microphone and the boombox. And making very smart decisions because every song sounds different on Corner's Gambit. And so we decide, we brought that into the process. And like, the one thing about pushback, and I did want to mention the story because I think it's funny. Yeah. I never got overt criticism from the from the Mountain Goats crew, like the fan community, that, that I thought that I should have got. I really th- thought that I did. Because we did make a shift in his recording, which, which changed the really the content of his recordings. And there's such a, there's such a, tradi- a tradition in music of that being tied to th- this notion of selling out. So it's hard yeah. to, to make that shift without assuming that somebody is doing it for the sheer sake of trying to reach a wider audience. Yeah. And I think that that was part of the reason why Darnia was so drawn into like my analog kind of world is that he wanted to go from boombox to if he was going to go into a studio he wanted to keep it um he wanted to have this like visceral yeah. tape thing but the one thing that's interesting is that uh, Christopher Maguire the great drummer who played on We Shall All Be Healed was once at a show his own show he's playing in a band and someone came up to him and said I'm a Mountain Goats fan and you have destroyed the Mountain Goats. <laughs> and, like, I love that. I yeah. mean, I thought... Because that's a beautiful reaction. Yeah. That's, like, a real reaction. And that's the, uh, that's the, the, the fire axe in the soundboard. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> and, like, I never got that. I know it was probably out there. But I, yeah. I actually... I really, like... I'm very into criticism. Like, I don't have any problem with someone expressing really strong views about art because that's why we're in this game. And I'm not personally... Like, I don't think that's a personal attack. I think that's a very valid thing to say. Mm-hmm. And, like... I never got that, but I do think about that story yeah. like often. Like, it's very interesting. All right, there you have it. That was uh, that was John Vanderslice recorded at his uh, tiny telephone studio in San Francisco. That um, I believe is actually the last analog-only studio on the West Coast. John uh, John actually just came out with uh, with two new records, which were in part funded on Kickstarter. Uh, Dagger Beach is the name of one of them. The other is a, uh, a cover of uh, Dick Boy's Diamond Dogs. So both of those are available now um, and uh, and funded in part uh, via Kickstarter. So so lots of uh, lots of interesting stuff happening uh, in the John Vanderslice camp. Um, he's actually going to be coming around on tour. Um, I think he's going to be doing a living room tour. So. You know, maybe uh, maybe I'll wake up one morning and, and there he'll be. But uh, there, you know, lot lot worse people to have hanging out in your living room than John Vanderslice, nicest guy in the world. Great. Uh, if you're in San Francisco, can recommend some very good talker he is. Uh, so thanks so much to John. Um, wanted to thank Ben for for uh, recording this for us, and uh, of course uh, Brian for editing it, and uh, everybody at Boing Boing for. Um, keeping us around, I guess. Uh, if you liked what you heard, please rate us on iTunes. Um, you can follow us on Tumblr. It's riylcast.tumblr.com. Uh, feedback, send us an email, riylcast at gmail.com. And uh, we will be back very shortly with another episode of R.I.Y.L.